Welcome to NACE Clinical Highlights. I'm Dr. Greg Sherman, Chief Medical Officer for NACE. Thank you all for joining today for the first of a two podcast series on the assessment and management of iron deficiency. This first podcast is on screening and diagnosis. Accompanying me today are two experts in this area. First, Dr. Wendy Wright. Dr. Wright is a family nurse practitioner. She's the owner and family nurse practitioner for Wright and Associates Family Healthcare in Amherst and Concord, New Hampshire. Wendy, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Greg, and welcome. Also joining me today is Dr. Lee Schulman. Dr. Schulman is a professor of OBGYN at the Feinberg School of Medicine of Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Lee. So happy you could be with us today. Uh, great to be here with you today as well. Looking forward to this podcast. Great. Thanks so much. So guys, we have a lot to talk about. So let's really just dive in. And Lee, I'm going to start off with you. I want to talk about iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia, starting off in women. And specifically, in which groups of women is this most prevalent? And what really makes you look closer with your history and clinical screening, which we'll get to in just a minute? Well, Greg, uh, the uh, as an obstetrician gynecologist, <clears throat> I separate iron deficiency anemia and anemia issues, both for obstetrical patients and gynecologic patients. The obstetrical uh, population is the easy one to screen because that's essentially everyone. Uh, pregnancy is a time in which there is increasing uh, fluid overload. It's a physiological process and it leads to anemia. Uh, and so as opposed to the gynecologic patient that uh, we really do need to do screening and assessment uh, in the obstetrical population, in the pregnancy population, it, it's everyone who needs to be evaluated uh, and not just once, but but throughout the pregnancy. Uh, and for those women who do uh, eventually become anemic or become iron, deficiency, iron deficiency, uh, have iron deficiency anemia, uh, these are women who, who require intervention, not just for their own health, but for the ongoing health and well-being of the fetus. Now, when it comes to the gynecologic population, this is a, a bit more challenging issue. Uh, the CBC test, uh, iron assessment assays, uh, are not a routine component of the gynecologic uh, well woman visit. Uh, and so we need to look into everything from diet, uh, from why she's coming to see us, even if it is just a quote-unquote routine annual visit. Uh, and, and we need to parse through a lot of things that as gynecologists, we sometimes have difficulty with. Uh, we'll ask a woman about their, their menstrual history and they'll say, oh, it, it's, it's fine. It's what it's always been. And then we find out uh, you know, that they have been bleeding extremely heavily for five to seven days and, and that woman has normalized that. Uh, so for the most part, what we're looking at are women who have heavy bleeding, uh, either as a result of fibroids or polyps or abnormal uterine bleeding from anovulation. Uh, we also have to consider, especially those of us in particularly in either affluent uh, parts of the uh, community or impoverished parts of the community about dietary intake of, of iron. Uh, there are lots of women who are, are, are vegans and who may not be taking in enough iron in their diet. And there are those, if, if we take care of, of poor women, uh, who may not be taking in enough iron because they're just not taking in enough calories. So 
Uh, for the most part, it's it's women who are, whether they say it or not, have heavy bleeding uh, and women who are not taking in enough iron. Thanks, Lee. That's real helpful. Wendy, let me flip the same question to you. Let's you know, take to the general population. What groups of patients do you find most susceptible to iron deficiency and associated anemia? Well, just like Dr. Shulman, there's a lot of overlap in our populations, right? So I end up seeing a lot of perimenopausal women who, as he mentioned, normalize their menstrual cycle and the heaviness of it. So certainly perimenopausal women is, is a place where I often look for iron deficiency anemia. But we also have to remember that older adults are often on a multitude of drugs, drugs like the DOAX or warfarin, that increase the likelihood of them losing or having chronic low volume blood loss. I also want us to think about those patients who have undergone bariatric surgery, because those folks certainly have an inability to adequately absorb post-surgery, particularly when they've had certain procedures, i.e. maybe the Roux-en-Y or the biliopancreatic diversion. And I guess last but not least, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but certainly babies and children who are consuming lots of cow's milk that tends to be very iron deficient. So, you know, I often say, yes, there are groups and pockets of people that we want to look for this in, people who are on PPIs or other medications. But we also need to be thinking about this as an, as a, an entity throughout the entire population. So, Wendy, that's helpful. Let me follow up with that question with, do you ask any specific questions about symptoms? If you were to ask our patients about fatigue, you'd wind up screening everybody. Are there any particular questions that guide your decision making other than the specific patient populations you're talking about? Sure. I often ask a question when I'm teaching and I say, how many of you are not fatigued and no one ever raises their hand, right? The entire population is fatigued. But certainly what we're looking for are things like, is that fatigue worsening? And for me, one of my big questions is, do you have any restless leg or restless arm type of syndrome or symptoms? Because that is very, very common in people with iron deficiency. We've all been taught to look for things like pica, do these people eat sand, which is you know, not usually what we see, but a lot of folks with iron deficiency will have ice uh, pica and they'll be ingesting a lot of ice. Uh, so I'll ask things like that, but I look for any condition that can be associated with an iron deficiency anemia, such as depression, palpitations, racing heart, uh, or and uh, do they have any conditions such as inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, where maybe they're not able to absorb enough iron and they're losing it through chronic volume, uh, chronic blood loss. So I think that those questions, worsening symptoms, new onset to symptoms are really things we need to look for. I think that's terrific. Certainly recognizing that a lot of us are fatigued, but worsening is really an important one. So Lee, what about in your population? Are you doing anything differently or unique to decide when you should be screening and understand the general um, risk for anemia and iron deficiency? Well, you know, Greg, as I said earlier, the, the obstetrical population is the easy one because everyone should be screened uh, throughout their pregnancy, uh, at least in, in all three trimesters uh, early on if they're 
presenting earlier and then in the second and the third trimester. Uh, again, the, the aspects of detecting a fibroid uterus or, or getting a, a, a really accurate assessment of, uh, of menstrual history, of bleeding history, uh, all of these play a, a vital role in, into me ordering that, uh, that testing, that screening to look for not just anemia, but iron deficiency anemia. Uh, and, and so taking that history uh, and having a rather low bar. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, the screening is not expensive. It's part of, uh, of healthcare insurance companies will pay for it. Uh, you need to have a low bar in, in ordering that, in doing that screening. Uh, because if you're just waiting to screen somebody who has obvious iron deficiency anemia, all the things uh, we learned in, in school and during our training about, you know, nail beds and, and pallor and, and increasing fatigue. If you're only going to screen that woman in a gynecologist practice, uh, you're going to miss most, if not almost all of the women who are actually walking around with iron deficiency anemia. Thanks very much, Lee. That's helpful. I'm going to switch gears now and let's get into the evaluation of anemia and actual specifics of the workup. As, as we all know, clinical cutoffs, hemoglobin less than 13 for men and less than 12 for women. I want to know how you each use that in your practice and then get into specific laboratory evaluation. Lee, how does that uh, hemoglobin trigger your, your uh, management strategies for these patients? Well, you, you know, Greg, it, first of all, it, it's uh, obviously it's based on our lab's normative values. Um, I don't need to be concerned about the differences between men and women because I don't see uh, male patients. Um, but what I will say, I think, is an important thing for women's healthcare providers is that getting a CBC by itself is only half the story. Uh, if you're not ordering, and we'll go into this in a moment, but if you're not ordering iron indices of some sort, you're not going to get the complete picture. Uh, to find out that a woman is not anemic based on normative values in your lab and not doing an iron study uh, is going to in invariably not find that woman uh, who is iron deficient, but not yet anemic, but yet will become anemic in the likely in the near future. Uh, so it's critical to combine CBC with iron studies. And I know we'll talk about which iron studies. There, there is, I have a, a, a actually a setting uh, on, my order, on my ordering form on my computer that says CBC and it, I, then I click iron and it orders that. But uh, I think it's critical that this testing be done in combination because not everyone who is anemic, uh, well, almost everyone who's anemic is iron deficient, although not all, uh, but a lot of women who are iron deficient may not yet be anemic. So it's critical to find them now and in very real sense to identify them and prevent the, the anemia that is going to, to, uh, to occur, invariably occur because of the deficiency in iron. Great. Wendy, let's then take that to you. Let's walk through some of this, this lab testing. There's a lot of different labs Lee had alluded to. Can you uh, describe for our uh, listeners what tests are out there and how we should prioritize them? Sure. So I think that generally we start with the CBC uh, and 
I don't just look at that hemoglobin. I think it's imperative that you look at the indices. I like to look at the MCV, mean corpuscular volume. Generally, when the MCV is under 80 or the MCHC is low, that's indicative of a microcytic and a hypochromic anemia, which iron deficiency is by far the most common. What I think is really important for our listeners is to remember that oftentimes physical exam findings, for instance, conjunctival pallor, is not gonna be present on that exam until someone's hemoglobin is under nine. So it's really important that you take a history. Has this woman had recent major surgery because that's a very big time for an iron deficiency anemia? Or has this man, for instance, get that CBC, don't just look at the hemoglobin, but look at those developing indices. And one other indice that I think is really important for our listeners is the RDW. Remember that an elevated RDW is telling you that the cells that are being released from the bone marrow are either bigger, or in the case of iron deficiency, smaller than they ought to be, which changes that overall size of the red blood cells that are out in circulation. So an elevated RDW in the setting of increasing MCV, uh, sorry, decreasing MCV, really should clue our listeners in that this person is evolving a microcytic anemia of which iron deficiency is the most common. I think that's real helpful. So let's say we we think that there's a risk for iron deficiency. Wendy, I'm going to put it back to you. Where do you go next with your laboratory testing for iron? Lee mentioned he has a, a protocol that he checks off. What do you do and what do you think our listeners should do? So I've already alluded to the CBC. The other thing I would encourage people to order is a ferritin. That is a marker of iron storage, right? But just remember that an elevated... So people can have an elevated ferritin if they have an underlying inflammatory disorder. So you've got to look at that ferritin. It's often a wide range. In my lab, a normal range is anywhere from 30 to 200. You got to look at that range and recognize that if it's below 16, that that's pretty diagnostic of an iron deficiency. But if you suspect iron deficiency and you have an elevated ferritin, it may be that they have a rheumatologic disorder or inflammatory bowel disease that is falsely elevating that ferritin. The other thing that helps me to differentiate is that transferrin SAT. And remember, that's really a protein. Transferrin is a protein that is responsible for carrying that iron. So when someone has an elevated transferrin SAT, that really points to hemochromatosis versus a low transferrin SAT that could either be iron deficiency or could be an anemia of chronic disease. So those are your big labs. You could certainly get into a serum iron, but if they're taking iron replacement, the serum iron's gonna be high. But sometimes I'll use a serum iron along with the TIBC because in the setting of iron deficiency, the serum iron should be low and the TIBC should be high. In the setting of an anemia of chronic disease, what you often have is a low serum iron, but you also have a low, uh, you have a low TIBC, and that's one of our differentiating factors as well. That, that's great, Wendy. Thanks so much. Lee, uh, are you doing anything differently in your practice, and are, or are you ordering all those at once or prioritizing them? Um, well, mostly prioritizing them. So I agree with Wendy. Uh, ferritin uh, is really the the seminal iron assay that that you need. Um, serum iron levels by themselves fluctuate a great deal, 
Uh, and again, if they have been taking, even unbeknownst to, to me, <clears throat> some sort of supplemental iron and over-the-counter product, uh, it may give us a false elevation or, or not provide a, a, a true assessment of the low, low serum levels of iron. Uh, so ferritin for me is part of that. Uh, also part of that is a TIBC, uh, as mentioned, which we're going to likely find to be elevated in cases uh, of iron deficiency. And I also get a TSAT. Uh, now they throw in the iron value. I don't order it. It's it's part of their the, the routine process. So those are the four that I get. Thanks very much. Lee and Wendy, we're just about out of time here. I'm going to ask you uh, to put you on the spot one last time. Wendy, two biggest pearls and takeaways for our audience about uh, screening and diagnosis of iron deficiency. Oh, that's an easy one for me. Screen early, screen frequently. That's pearl number one. Because folks, if you're not seeing iron deficiency or iron deficiency anemia, the terms are often used interchangeably. They're a little bit different, but if you're not seeing it, you're not looking for it. Because particularly in women, it is estimated, some of the studies say up to 70 to 80% of women are to some degree iron deficient. And then the other big pearl, and I cannot emphasize this to you enough, is once you find it, you need to figure out why. Because the number one reason for an iron deficiency anemia in anyone over the age of four years of age in this country is chronic low volume blood loss. So you need to figure out, is it menstrual? Are they serial blood donors? Or are they losing blood through a GI or GU malignancy that no one has detected? So screen often, screen frequently, and be aggressive about your screening, and second, figure out why. I love it. Lee, any other pearls for you in your practice? Yeah, I'm going to put two. One I already mentioned, but the first one is incredibly simplistic. Uh, you're not going to diagnose iron deficiency anemia with a CBC alone. Uh, yes, you will get that occasional, or not maybe not so occasional, patient who has a rather severe IDA where you can make heads or tails out of evaluating the MCV and the RDW. Uh, I, I agree with Wendy of that, but, but it's only providing you with at best half the information that you need to best assess that patient. So whatever combination of iron indices you're, you need to order, that should be a routine part when you're uh, trying to assess your patient who's there for routine care, who's there for a well woman visit, not necessarily there with a complaint or a problem. You need to order that iron assay, those iron assays to get the full picture. And, and the second pearl is, again, as I mentioned before, <clears throat> if you are waiting to evaluate that woman, and I'm talking primarily about in a gynecology practice. Uh, if you're waiting to evaluate that woman until she has those cardinal signs and symptoms of iron deficiency anemia, you are missing a whole lot of women who are walking around who have not yet gotten to that level of severity, but who in fact, whether it's increasing fatigue or other more subtle signs and symptoms of iron deficiency anemia, I hate to end it there, but Lee and Wendy, we are out of time. Thank you so much. We're going to talk more about uh, the treatment of iron deficiency in our next podcast. Everybody, the second in this series called Treating Iron Deficiency Anemia, What You Need to Know Now. And you'll be able to find this podcast on this site or wherever you find your podcast. I'd like to thank our faculty once again, Drs. Wendy Wright and Lee Schulman, for being with us as we talk about iron deficiency anemia. Thank you both. 
Thank you. Thanks, Greg. If you're interested in learning more about this or other topics, you can go to the NACE website at naceonline.com and register for an upcoming live virtual program or any of our other enduring activities which we have developed. Please like us on Facebook at NACME to be part of our online social media community and get access to other content and programs we share. Finally, I want to thank you, our audience, for joining us for this podcast. I hope you've learned something new you can bring back to your practice. We look forward to having you join us for other upcoming podcasts in the future.